0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, the bi-weekly, advised-focused Xena warrior princess to Working's Hercules The Legendary Journeys. I'm your host, June Thomas. And
1: I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. June, I feel like with that analogy, though, you're saying that working overtime is far superior to working.
0: <laughs> it does seem that way, doesn't it? I'm sure they both have fans. I just don't know any of those Hercules fans, but I'm sure they're out there.
1: Well, Kevin Sorbo probably watches it by himself, <laughs> you know, with all of his MAGA gear. Anyway, what are we talking about today, June? And enough about UPN syndicated shows uh, of yesteryear. <laughs> What's our subject for today?
0: So I recently received a A really interesting email newsletter from writer Jamie Green. Her first book, The Possibility of Life, was published on April 18th, about a month before we're recording this episode. And in the newsletter... Jamie shared her feelings about the immediate post-publication period, and it struck me as a topic that doesn't get talked about much. And since we both know Jamie, you two have been friends for a long time, I know, Isaac, I thought we should invite her on the show to talk about this weird moment right after the book hits the streets. Also, Isaac, I just want to warn you that I'll be asking about your experience of some of these things, too.
1: I look forward to being grilled like a marinated chicken thigh. Uh, Anyway, welcome to the show, Jamie. Jamie?
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Before we get into the topic at hand, Jamie, as you know, huge fan of your book, The Possibility of Life, but I would like you to maybe describe it to our listeners instead of me. So what is the book? What was the writing experience like for you? And and about how long did it take you to uh, do it?
2: Yeah. So The Possibility of Life is a nonfiction book. It's about how we imagine alien life in science and in science fiction, and then looks at what all of those imaginings tell us about what it means to be human. That's my elevator pitch, which I have been refining for the last three or four years. (laughs) You know, talking about how long it took is a little weird because like on the one hand, I sold the book and signed a contract in like spring of 2019. So, you know, four years from that to publication. So maybe two and a half, three years of writing and revising. But I've been trying to figure out how to write a book about all this stuff for maybe a decade, a little longer Mm -hmm. than that, somewhere between 10 and three years, I guess I would say.
1: I remember us talking about SETI research when you were in graduate school. You you were thinking about writing about it then.
2: Yeah, and it just took a really long time for me to figure out like how I, as a non-scientist, could write about this topic that already had a lot of books written about it by scientists, by people with PhDs. Because when I was in grad school, it was for an MFA, not a PhD (laughs) in astronomy.
0: (laughs) Right. Wow. So one of the things I'm curious about is publication day. It's a bit of a kind of nominal marker. The books are already in the shops by then, hopefully. Uh, Amazon starts shipping that day. But otherwise, from the outside, it doesn't seem like much actually changes on that date. But is that how it felt to you? And To what extent were you able to celebrate on that day?
2: It is a very weird day because it is like the book's birthday in the world. (laughs) But yeah, you know, it starts getting on shelves earlier. Bookshop UK sent out its copies like a week early. I don't know why. Great, whatever. And like (laughs) the book has already been out like within the industry. You know, people who write about books, my friends and colleagues, I had already sent early copies to everyone I interviewed for the book. So like lots of People in my orbit have already read the book and no one reads a whole book on publication day, just about, you know, like unless it's the new Harry Potter book and it's 2002, like no one's calling out of work to read my book all day. So no one has (laughs) read the book on publication day who like hasn't read it before. Yeah, but there is this big wave of congratulations on that day. But I realized that part of what was so disorienting, and this was what I realized like weeks after through lots of angsty text messages with other friends who had books coming out this spring, because you form like a little support group, um, which has been very, very helpful, is I realized that like all the congratulations on publication day are congratulating you for writing the book, which is a thing that I finished doing a year ago. Yes, some people would be like, oh, I read this book because I got an advanced copy. It's wonderful. You should all read it. But hopefully those people have already told me they like the book. Like, there's (laughs) nothing about the book. It's a lot of congratulations, Jamie. And I realized very quickly that it was weird because I was like, I want people talking about the book rather than recognizing this achievement of mine that's at this point kind of old. Like, I wanted the book out in the world. It's so weird for me to say this rather than praise focused at me, which usually is one of my favorite things.
1: (laughs) You know, one thing you mentioned in that newsletter, which we should say that the post is called 40 things about publishing your book is it's a really draining time, actually, right after the book comes out. You're exhausted. You're also doing events. You're doing interviews. At the same time, you're kind of vulnerable to colds and other ailments. It's sort of like right after you close a play and then everyone gets sick or whatever. You know, is that that just about the events you're doing? Is that what you're called upon to do? Is it is it the feeling of release? Like, what do you attribute that to?
2: It's partly that feeling of release where I also because part of the reason Isaac and I know each other is we both grew up as theater people. And so I also would do plays in college. And then like you strike the set and the next week everyone gets sick because it's like your body is like, oh, now I can rest. Now I can like let down my guard. But pub day You get that feeling, but it's also in some ways just the beginning. It's the beginning of your book's life out in the world among strangers, among people who are not in the publishing industry, we hope. And there is a lot to do after that. Like, part of why this is emotionally confusing is I don't want to seem ungrateful. Like, one of the things that's so exhausting is I'm very lucky that my publisher hired a publicist who is setting up lots of like local and regional radio interviews for me. So the whole month after my book came out, I, you know, once or twice a day had to hop on a call for 10 minutes, 30 minutes and talk to a radio host in whatever city around the country about my book, which is an amazing opportunity and is like a very good way to sell books. And I'm very grateful for that. And also it is exhausting. And also I got kind of sick of it because these short interviews are all the same questions over and over again. And it starts feeling not like an actual conversation, but like a little performance of all of the answers that I have eventually memorized and have become a bit rote. (laughs) And it's like, oh no, woe is me. I have to do so many interviews for my book, but on the other hand, it is really exhausting. It's really disruptive of your day. I'm a freelancer, and also, I don't know how I would do any of this if I weren't a freelancer. Like, oh, do you have a half hour here, an hour here? Like, I wouldn't, so I'm very lucky that I have that flexibility. But it also makes it really hard to have any sort of sustained focus, to have, like, a sense of what your day is, to, like, pivot from that performative sort of, you know, talking, creating, responding Externally thing to internal creativity and focus is also really, really hard. And so yeah, it's just like a very confusing period where I want to celebrate, I want to rest. Yeah. But we're also just at the beginning of things. I also teach, and so I had to go right into grading, which was like oh my God. very confusing. And so, like you had asked about what was pub day like. It was so weird because it was a teaching day for me. And I hadn't told my students about the book because I didn't want to, like, make anything about me in what is their Mm. creative writing classroom. But I didn't know. Maybe some of them would have figured it out. No one figured it out. So I, like, woke (laughs) up, posted on Twitter about my book, drove for an hour to campus while, like, hopefully, congrats, Twitter stuff is coming in, taught. Got back in the car and drove home. Then I had to go to like an urgent care virtual visit because I had had a cough that I couldn't shake, which is not the cough that you're hearing now. This is a new cold. (laughs) And then I like did an Instagram live about my book. And it was just so confusing because on the one hand, I had just achieved this. Lifelong career goal, like I'm not on Broadway, I'm not a ballerina, but I published a book, which is something (laughs) that I have wanted to do for as long as I can remember and then on the other hand, I'm like driving an hour to campus and getting my kid to school and like trying to get prescription cold medicine because I keep coughing in the middle of the night. It's just like, what what happened? And then it's like you just kind of wait to see what the book does. It's so weird.
0: Yeah, well, we have a lot more questions and we will be back to ask them Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey,
1: listeners, do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? Well, get in touch and share your advice. You can email us at workingatslate.com or even better, call us and leave a listener voicemail at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-W-O-R-K.
0: And we're back. Jamie, it's really striking hearing you say all that. You know, as journalists, we're in a tricky position because as a book author, you're in the hands of your publisher's publicity department. They are very knowledgeable specialist professionals. So, of course, it makes sense to take their advice and suggestions. But on the other side of things, as journalists, we also receive a lot of books or notices about books for potential review. So we also have a sense of what's effective, at least for us what has most surprised you about the things you've been asked to do? And have any of the things that you thought were, I'm not going to say a waste of time, but maybe a little bit more marginal, have been really fun or have seemed to be really effective? You mentioned Instagram live events. Like, How do you get psyched up to do all these things?
2: Getting psyched up is the easier answer because I think I benefit in in this weird publicity world from having been a performer, from having been an actor, from having that thing in my life. And But yeah. what's been confusing is I'm like, I'm an extrovert. I'm a performer. Here I go. This is what I was meant for. And it hasn't been as fun or gratifying as I thought it would be. Whereas, on the other hand, I recorded my own audiobook. luckily Ooh. when I did not have a cold like this. And that was a really... Awesome, rewarding creative experience to be able to put my own written words into a physical performance and like embody my words. Like that, I was like, oh, this is this is what I'm made for. This is the intersection of everything. (laughs) And I kind of thought I would have that feeling about doing interviews and publicity. And it has felt a little emptier, which Mm. has surprised me. But yeah, psyching myself up, I can kind of flip the switch and I'm like, hey, here we go. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Our listeners won't be able to see the little dance you did right then. The little like jazz, jazz hands, hands yeah. waving the jazz hands. <laughs> one of the things that I loved in your newsletter, Jamie, was the sense that you were telling us things that usually go unsaid, right? It's mm-hmm. like, we don't often talk about like, actually sometimes publicity is being can be kind of a, a drag or, you know, something <laughs> like for me it was like, if I have to tell that story about being traumatized by that freshman year college production one more fucking time. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> but then you feel ungrateful saying that. So, you know, you... Yeah sort of address both sides of that in a really great way, which I loved. You wrote, uh, having a book come out, isn't laurels and all your heroes welcome you into a secret club. And then you also wrote the real secret club is built out of text messages and Instagram DMs. It's members, a loose network of other authors with other books coming out within a month or so of yours. How did you find or build or join, uh, that particular network of writers?
2: it was almost entirely writers who i was already internet friends with mm-hmm. and then we realized that our books were coming out around the same time and so that like deepened those friendships and we started talking about you know sort of more personal less public things than we maybe would have been like responding to each other's instagrams about but there was at least one writer Hannah Matthews whose brilliant amazing beautiful book about abortion came out the first week of may Where I think we sort of followed each other on Twitter because of that or, like, found each other because of that and sent each other copies of our books and I think really connected through that. Like, I didn't know her and then I read her book and I was like, oh, this is a beautiful book. This is someone I want to be friends with. And this is someone who's about to go through the same thing that I'm going through and finding other debut authors was really important because a couple of my Instagram buddies have more established platforms and it's their second Mm. book or they have a newsletter with 30,000 subscribers. And so their publication experience and my publication experience are a little different. But having a couple of other debut nonfiction writers who have written on the internet, but are not Famous, but you know, it's just it's it's different. And so, being able to say, like, you know, how are things going for you trying to place excerpts or texting each other when we got our like pre publication, like trade reviews, you sort of reach out and then you like grab onto each other really hard because you realize that this is not something that like anyone else understands in the moment and doing it now versus doing it three years ago that's also just really different. I did also join a big Slack community for people having debut books come out in 2023. There seems to be one of these that gets started. So there's 2023 debuts, 2024 debuts, and that was a little different because it was mostly fiction writers, including YA and and children's books and whatnot. But having like a big community where you could just sort of find other People ask questions like, oh, how are you making images to promote the big Barnes & Noble pre-sale sale or whatever? Like just having that community of strangers who are all brought together by going through this weird experience at the same time because you really need a place to be able to talk about the hard stuff that isn't a public social media Mm-hmm. Place because like I'm so lucky and this is so amazing and I don't want to be like wah wah oh no I published a book
0: yeah 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 (laughs) Jamie you mentioned that at times like this you are conscious of having been a theater major (laughs) and and you know enjoying the spotlight super useful at a time like this do you have any tips for people in a similar position for whom that is not a natural response who don't necessarily enjoy the spotlight, but know they have to take advantage of this moment because it is super important to to grab whatever attention you can right now. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, one thing that helped me and I know that like Twitter is in, uh, let's say, a transitional moment right now. (laughs) But in terms of worrying about self-promotion on social media, because a lot of people worry about Their social media presence turning into self promotion all at once, about overdoing it. Remembering that no one sees all your posts, but also finding someone who you follow who promotes a lot, who doesn't annoy you. Like realizing, oh, this person retweets praise about their book all the time. And I'm just like, oh, that's nice. And recognizing that reaction in yourself. And then trusting that the people who follow you and care about you and care about your work will have a similarly generous response to your self-promotion really allowed me to just kind of let it rip. Yeah. As for, you know, talking and talking about the book, I would definitely practice a lot, but it's, that's, it's honestly hard for me to get into the mind space of an introvert or someone who doesn't, yeah. you know, like putting whole paragraphs of sentences together.
1: What's the matter with those people? I mean, really? <laughs> I
2: don't know. Why don't you sh- want to talk?
1: I don't know. It's easier to imagine Steve Lund, the sentient alien plant and semiosis that you write about than it is, you know, introverts. What's that about?
2: <laughs> because Steve Lund also <laughs> loves talking about himself. But that's it is true. just something where it's like built into me where it's like I enjoy the process of putting thoughts together on the fly while I'm talking. And I think that that's related to my writing process. I'm really curious, actually, if this like tends to track for people where I tend to just sort of write a first draft in one big rush. I don't self-censor. I sort of see where it's going and then I come back and edit. And I think that that probably makes it easier for me to talk in a similar way without getting in my own way, without second guessing. So, okay, here's my thought. This is just occurring to me, which is also proof of how my, I let my brain just kind of <laughs> run, is the thing that has helped me write that way is doing morning pages, a la Julia Cameron, a la The Mm artist Way, is practicing free writing, practicing low stakes, you know, no value judgments. Writing a lot outside of drafting my writing has made it easier for me to write drafts where I'm not getting in my own way, where I'm not second guessing, where I'm not trying. Because you can't, write and assess the quality of the writing at the same time. Like that's what gives you writer's block. That's what trips you up. And I think I'm guessing that being able to do that in my writing makes it easier to do that speaking as well. And, and making writing a place where I'm open to discovery and open to weird detours makes (laughs) it more comfortable for. I'm like doing it as I'm talking about it, but makes it more comfortable to um, talk in a, discovery mode rather than a like, it must be perfect before a sentence comes out of my mouth mode.
1: I was joking about introverts earlier, but honestly, like, I think anything that you feel like you're not naturally good at, you could become more comfortable with, with practice. Right. And so, you know, one thing that you can do if you don't feel like you're comfortable being interviewed is you can just have a friend ask you some interview questions like you would for a job. You know, very famous people get actually media trained. There are professional people who come in, who work with their publicists, who teach them how to do an interview. You probably can't afford those people, but you do have friends or a spouse or a partner or whatever. And you can just be like, Hey, can you, you've read my book. Can you ask me some questions about it? Let's practice this so that it's less about getting the answers completely right. Scripted wise. It's then when you are asked a question, you're like, Oh, I've done this a bunch of fucking times. Who gives a shit? And you just, you can just do it (laughs) and it becomes a lot easier.
2: Yeah. And I think it's important to do that with a person and not only alone in the car or the bathroom mirror, because doing it alone in the car or the bathroom is very important. But then as soon as you get another person in front of you, you might clam up like I in college took singing lessons and I'm not very good at it, but I was always so much better with my voice teacher alone than when I got in front of an audience like Mm. I just didn't have the same control. And so you want to practice with as much of an audience as you will have in the interview. So if that's one other person asking you questions, that still is closer to the experience of the real interview than just doing it alone. So I would practice all of that. Like, you know, do it where you're comfortable alone. Do it with another person where you're a little less comfortable, too.
0: So much wisdom. Listeners, we'll be back with one last round of questions and advice after a break.
1: Hey, listeners, me again. I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying working overtime, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love you to rate or review the show. It really does help new listeners find us. And if Overcast is your app of choice, as it is for me, please hit the star to recommend this episode to others. All right. Back to the show.
0: So, Finally, I have some questions for both of you. I'm about a year out from publication and I have a lot of editing, rewriting to do. There's still a lot of tasks on my book to-do list. But at a certain point, it's out of the author's hands and you're just waiting for publication day, right? In that period, I'm sure there are still things a writer could and should do to help their book. If it's going to succeed. So, you know, identify excerpts, write pieces for other publications, pitch stories. I'd love to hear both of you opine on the best way to spend those strange liminal weeks, months, however long it is. Isaac, why don't we start with you?
1: June. I think you're overestimating how much time you're going to spend sitting around waiting for publication day because there's actually a lot of stuff to do. Between just the galleys and the final version of the book being sent to be printed out, you're going to be proofreading it eight to 10 times. You're going to be going through a bunch of different drafts. Well, it was eight for me. Uh, the last one of which was just making sure everyone's name was spelled correctly.
2: I regret not doing that pass. Uh, oh. yeah. Apologies to astronomer Andrew Simeon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> in in nonfiction, there's photo. And if you've quoted more than like 100 oh. words of something, quotation permissions. So oh, those take forever. Sucks. You have to get blurbs. There's all the pre-release strategy stuff that you just mentioned. The publicist for your book should be working with you on all of that. But still, you're the one who has to reach out to your friends. You know, you're the one who's going to fill out a questionnaire that's like everyone you've ever met who might help promote the book. And then you're the one who's going to be emailing all of those people, not the publicist. You have to come up with the pitches. You have to pick the best excerpt. It really does not let up. I've often talked about it as a marathon made out of a bunch of sprints. But actually, (laughs) a, a friend of mine who's had books do really well and books not do well, he he refers to this period before your book is released as the storm before the calm. Yes. And there's something actually to that. So my big advice is less about how do you use those liminal months? They are going to fill up. It's more to think about how to take care of yourself during it so that you don't burn out and then burn out even further than you thought was possible
2: but they are still extremely liminal because yeah. there's so much time between when the book is finished enough that you're like, I can't wait for this to be out in the world. And then it's like a whole nother year yes, that before is publication true. day. And so there are eight to 10 months when you care about your book and are insanely excited about it and no one else cares or knows about it. One piece of advice I would give is, For the excerpts and essays that you're going to be hopefully writing to go Mm -hmm. along with it, Mm -hmm. to not plan on getting a lot of creative, thoughtful work done in the six weeks or so before the book comes out because your brain will stop working. I was really reassured by the number of published authors who told me, you're not going to be able to read. You're not going to be able to focus. You're not going to be able to write, which was unfortunate because I had two essays that I had to write in that time, (sighs) including like a very challenging piece of science writing. And my brain just stopped working. Like I ended up rereading a favorite series from when I was like 14 years old because (laughs) I needed comfort reading. Don't plan on reading anything new. Wow.
1: That's actually the thing that is the most similar to me between the book birthday and one's child's actual birth is yes. uh, is that it just wrecks your brain and your ability to do anything for a while. I mean, there's other physical stuff going on with giving childbirth. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But in terms of like, I mean, your brain just stops working for a bit. And it's, and it's yeah. really, for me anyway, it was really weird and scary. And the only thing that got me through it was actually a similar thing of other writers who had been through it just being like, it'll pass. It might take months. Who knows? knows, you know, but it will actually pass and your brain will start working again.
0: Jamie, this was your first nonfiction book. You are a debut writer, but you've been working for several years as the series editor of the Best American Science and Nature Writing series. So I know that you're super familiar with the publishing process. So how was your own book different? Oh, it was
2: totally different. Like for for Best American Science and Nature Writing, A lot of my work is logistical, is wrangling contact information and permissions and things like that, and doing a lot of reading. But the final selections are made by the guest editor every year. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. something that was hugely helpful for me a decade ago at this point was when I was in graduate school, the summer between my two years of classes, I got an internship at a literary agency. Because when I first moved to the city, to New York, and was working in theater, my first job was at a talent agency. And that was so helpful for learning how the industry worked. Because so much of professional theater is just a bigger version of college theater. Acting, directing, producing, that's all pretty much the same. But agents and casting do not exist in college in that Uh way. And so learning Uh that side of the industry was really helpful. So then when I was moving into the writing industry, I thought, I need to learn how that side works because that can be so opaque and intimidating to writers. And anything that writers can do to understand how the business of publishing works is so helpful just to demystify it, to understand what the different parties in publishing want, what their Mm -hmm. goals are, who they're beholden to. So that and working on Best American and like, Knowing people who are editors and who are publicists and just like sort of demystifying it so it's not this whole magical kingdom, but it's just like (laughs) people doing their jobs and people who all want things and go about it in different ways. That was really helpful to me, but this feels completely different from from Best American in that like it's my words, it's my work rather than someone else's work that I'm shepherding along.
1: You know, I didn't have any of that internship experience and I have not edited a Best American series. So the thing that I had to learn eventually how to do is to actually just ask people what the hell they were talking about. Because the mm. truth of the matter is, is that in general, people in the industry, and I have to say, like, I love my agent. I love my editor. I just want to work with both of them for the rest of my life. But their mm-hmm. default is not to explain things. Their default is just be like, so we're going to do this. And the PL is this and blah, 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 blah. And it really is on the author to be like, <clears throat> I don't understand what you're saying. Instead of doing what I would normally do in like college when I hadn't done the homework, I'd be like, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Yes. No, that totally makes sense. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Epicureanism. Anyway, so, you know, you just ask <laughs> ask questions. They will be generous to you in response to it. You yeah. are not actually making yourself look like a less accomplished or dumber author by, by doing so.
2: If, yeah. And if I can just jump in on that, like one of the most common things in that debut author Slack group that I'm in is someone will ask a question. And the answer is like, ask your agent,
0: ask your agent (laughs) if
2: this is like so many of my emails to my agent are, is this weird? Is this normal? (laughs) What should I expect next? And And like, it is their job to be your person. And so sometimes your editor might feel a little like, ooh, you want to impress them, you want to whatever, which like, hopefully Mm -mm. we can all move past eventually. But like, ask the questions ask the and questions. like, is this normal? What should I expect? Are two of the most oh, important my God. ones. I think
1: I remember when I got my copy edit back when you get the galley proofs, you know, at that point, you've actually had quite a bit of distance from the book. You probably haven't read mm-hmm. it in a little while. Mm-hmm. And it's also in like a different font and it's on the page. Mm-hmm. So it looks different. And I don't know if this was what your experience was like, Jamie, but I was like, this book isn't good enough yet. It's actually not oh, good enough. And I made a bunch of changes. They were small but there was about one per page. And sometimes it was just shortening a sentence, taking out a repetition. The notes were kind of a mess and needed to be redone. You know, it's stuff like that. And I was in the midst of this freak out because I was worried that I was doing something that you weren't supposed to do. And so I actually just like, you know, email my agent was like, Hey, can we talk about copy edits and how many changes you're allowed to make? And she's like, what kind of changes are we talking about? I was like, it's like one small change of page. She's like, Oh, don't worry about it. I've had writers who rewrote an entire chapter. I was like, okay, well, I'm not that this is going to be okay. You know? And so it can just be really, really helpful to stay in the loop with the people who have a lot more experience than you. And that to me goes back to what Jamie was talking about earlier, which is that finding a community of people who are in the same field as you uh, or maybe even in the same position as you it's really useful it's really helpful um especially because you can just go back to them and be like am i crazy for feeling this way and they just go no <laughs> you are not crazy you know i had a nervous breakdown when i got my copy edit or you know whatever it is yeah. and, uh, that that kind of community building of people in the same field is really really important
0: i think that is a great place to end this has been so useful so fun We've been talking with Jamie Green, whose book, The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos is out now. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. This has been so fantastic. Thank you. This is really fun.
1: Can I also say, as someone who has read Jamie's book, that it is amazing. It is great if you, you know, care about the human condition, not just science fiction, but the human condition at all. You should go out. You should buy it. You should buy it in hardcover. You should then buy it in audiobook, because not only will you hear Jamie read it, but uh, almost certainly she gets a higher share of the royalties of the audiobook. That's usually how it works. (laughs) And then you should email Jamie and DM her and Insta her to tell her how much you loved it, because, you know, as we know, right? Need the validation.
0: Yes. I cannot believe how much fantastic advice we've gotten in this episode, including that last bit. Let me leave you with one more, though, listeners. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to address, we really want to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK.
1: If you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get so many goodies, an abondanza of goodies, a bottomless <laughs> Olive Garden breadstick basket of goodies, including full access behind the paywall, exclusive episodes of Slow Burn, which is coming back soon, and Big Mood, Little Mood, uh, bonus segments of shows like this one, a delightful newsletter written by a different Slate staffer every week. And you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working.
0: Thank you. To Jamie, thank you to Kevin Bendis, who produces Working Overtime, and to our series producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work.